Father, we ask you this morning to illuminate your words for us. God, open our minds to what you have to teach us. I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would encourage us where we need encouraging, that you would provide hope where we require hope. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been attending any of our services over the past few weeks, you know that over these past few weeks, throughout the month of December, we've been going through a sermon series entitled God With Us for the Christmas season. And as Tim mentioned, uh, we're going to continue on that theme this morning uh, in the Christmas season and conclude that sermon series today. The first week that we had the sermon series, we looked at the name of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And then the next week, we looked at the wonder Jesus brought with the incarnation by looking at uh, the first part of Luke chapter 2. And then after that, we looked at the threat that Jesus can be to those who don't trust him in Matthew chapter 2. And then for Christmas Eve last weekend, Chris shared with us the promise that Jesus offers us by looking at John chapter 1. And this morning, as we conclude this sermon series, we're going to look at the hope that Jesus is to the Christian, the hope that Jesus is to the Christian, looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. Now, the word hope has come to mean a variety of things in our culture today. Most often, we use this word hope uh, in a way that's absent of certainty. We may have hoped for a certain gift this year for Christmas. Uh, Some of us may have been disappointed, or some of us may may have been happy on Christmas morning when we did or did not receive that gift that we hoped for. With the new year coming, you may be hoping to achieve certain goals that you weren't able to achieve this year, or continue certain goals that you've been able to achieve this year. In fact, I saw recently Facebook is bringing in the new year with a, a new campaign where they're encouraging people to hashtag hopeful for and uh, give a list of things that they want to do in the year 2018. And as I was looking through some of those posts on Facebook last night in my pessimism, I, I said to myself, most of those things probably aren't going to get done. But some of you may be hoping for a variety of things that you have no certainty about. Some of you may be hoping, hoping that Indianapolis gets a pro football team someday, for example. There's many different things that we can hope about in the sense that We have no certainty, but we desire that those things would come true. But when we think of hope in the biblical sense, it becomes something that's not void of certainty, but actually something that's founded on certainty. Because our hope is in an eternal, unchanging God who has already promised to fulfill all things through Christ. And that is the kind of hope that we'll be discussing today as we look at Luke chapter 2. And if you've read this passage carefully, maybe in the week leading up to today or just with us together this morning, you may have noticed that the word hope actually isn't mentioned at all in this passage. In all the 17 verses, there is no use of the word hope. And you may wonder how in the world it is we're going to speak on hope when the word isn't even mentioned in the text And I must admit, I asked myself the same question a few weeks ago when I was given this passage 
and told to preach on hope. But as I did read the passage and as I've prepared for the sermon leading up to this week, in this last week and this week, I realized that in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38, hope may not be mentioned explicitly, but it is an underlying force that influences much of what happens in this passage, particularly as we look at the characters Simeon and Anna in the last half of this passage. And as we look at these characters, they show us three specific things about hope in Christ. They show us that hope in Christ leads to waiting, worshiping, and witnessing. And those three points are going to outline our discussion this morning. If you weren't able to write those down, don't worry, we'll go through each of those one by one in the minutes to come. But before we dive too deep into Luke chapter 2, as I mentioned before, we've been hopping around from gospel to gospel, looking at every gospel so far, actually, other than Mark. Mark always gets a bad rap because uh, apparently he didn't like children, so he didn't put the birth of Christ in his gospel. So we don't typically come to Mark when it comes to the Christmas season. But in order for us to really ground ourselves in Luke this morning, I want us just to consider two characteristics of the gospel of Luke that I think will inform us as we interpret what's happening in this particular passage today. The first thing to keep in mind is that throughout Luke's gospel, he places a unique emphasis on the return of Christ. He places a unique emphasis on the return of Christ. Throughout his gospel, Luke reminds his readers that Christ has indeed ascended into heaven, but there will come a day where just as he ascended into heaven, he will also descend. And no more clearly do we see this than actually in the book of Acts, which of course is not the gospel of Luke, but Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in the first chapter of that book, verse 11, we are told that two men, presumably angels, come to the men of Galilee who are staring up as Jesus is entering into the heavens. And they basically say, what are you doing waiting here? Don't you know that there will come a day where Jesus is going to return? So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Luke places a unique emphasis on the return of Christ. And then secondly, the thing to keep in mind is that Luke's gospel is written to a Gentile audience. Specifically, if you read the first few verses of Luke, you see that both Luke and Acts are written to a specific person, Theophilus who was most likely a Gentile, uh, one that was wealthy, well-to-do, well-respected, well-learned. But in a general sense, we can look at Luke and consider that his general audience is Gentile believers. And if you're familiar at all with biblical history, you would know that Gentiles were not typically respected by Jewish people that as Jesus came down and established a new covenant through the cross, not only was that available to Jewish people who were considered God's people in the Old Testament, but now this covenant was available to all people, including Gentiles. And so because of this, Luke places a unique emphasis on people that are often disrespected, often considered the lower parts of society. He mentions people such as the poor and the needy and the lowly in order to remind his Gentile audience that although they may not be loved by the Jews, they are still loved by Christ. 
And although they have been forgotten by some, they have not been forgotten by God. He is still faithful to them, and he still considers them worthy of his kingdom. So time and time again, Luke seeks to remind his reader, the kingdom of God is not made of the rich and famous, but of the average and the overlooked. So with those two things in mind, we can look now at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, or excuse me, 22 through 38. It opens here with Mary and Joseph. Now they have already circumcised Jesus on the eighth day of his birth. And we are looking most likely that Jesus is around 40 days old at this point because they have traveled around 30 days to Jerusalem in order to offer a sacrifice at the temple. Because they've given birth to a baby, and it can be a messy process, they've been considered unclean in a religious sense. And so they've made their way now to Jerusalem's temple in order to offer a sacrifice. Specifically, they offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tell us that Mary and Joseph most likely didn't have very much money because if they had, they would have sacrificed a lamb instead. But at some point in this process of them offering a sacrifice at the temple, Mary and Joseph run into a character named Simeon. And perhaps the only thing that's really noteworthy about Simeon is that there's nothing really noteworthy about Simeon. We don't see him mentioned anywhere else in any of the other Gospels. No other book of the Bible brings up this particular Simeon. Luke is the only one that draws attention to him. His social rank isn't mentioned in this particular passage. And even the name Simeon was a pretty common, average name when this story took place. So again, as we've already discussed, Luke is reminding us his reader, that the kingdom of God is not dependent on some things like popularity, but it's dependent on God's power being displayed through even the most average person. And Simeon is where we'll begin our discussion really today. The first thing that we see through Simeon's life is that hope in Christ leads to waiting. Hope in Christ leads to waiting. If you look at verse 25, it says that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, in order to understand the significance of verse 25 and the fact that Simeon has been waiting for most likely a very long time for this day to come, it would help us to understand a little bit of background into the nation of Israel. Up until the birth of Christ, the nation of Israel has experienced what we would call 400 years of silence. There is no designated prophet that has been speaking to Israel on God's behalf. And I'm sure that more than a few people in the nation had become fairly convinced that God wanted nothing to do with the nation anymore. Many people probably assumed that the days of God caring for his people were done. But nevertheless, here we see Simeon waiting faithfully because he believed that the promises of God were going to be fulfilled. And not just the promises that were made to him personally, but even the promises that were made to Israel corporately. And of course, God does fulfill his promise to Simeon. Simeon will not die before he sees God's salvation for his people. 
And as Simeon is actually holding Jesus in his arms, Luke tells us in verses 29 and 30 that Simeon makes what would be a fairly interesting statement. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, Simeon is saying, I can die right now and I'll be okay with that. Now, let's not miss the weight of what Simeon is saying here in verse 29. And really, I can't find another time in the scriptures where someone says to the Lord, kill me now. I've gotten everything I've ever wanted. He hasn't seen Jesus perform any miracles. Simeon hasn't heard any of Jesus' teaching, but he has seen enough for his life to be fulfilled because he has seen the hope that Christ is going to bring to the world. Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw someone post on Facebook, and I, I don't remember who it was, and I don't remember what quote this actually comes from, but the paraphrase went something like this. Old age is when you have more regrets than you do dreams. And I read that and I thought, well, that's something to look forward to, I guess. But whether we're young or old, I think we can all agree that it doesn't take long in life before we begin accumulating a great deal of regrets. And as we get older and older and eventually come to the point in our age where we're considered ready to die, we've accumulated an entire life of regrets. Which makes Simeon's statement here very interesting because in verse 20, 29, it seems that Simeon doesn't have any regrets. Everything that he's ever lived for, he's done it. Everything that he's ever desired, he's got it. And most people assume that Simeon is an old man, although the text doesn't actually give us his age in any way or, or even really give us a hint at his age. But the point is still made even if he's young. I'm 25 years old. And imagine if I stood before you this morning with confidence and said, I have experienced everything in my life that I ever wanted to experience. I am ready to die right now. I'm sure those of you who are older and wiser in the room would look at me and think, I think you have a really low expectation for life if you think that you've experienced everything that you've ever wanted or needed to experience in the matter of 25 years. So why is it that Simeon is able to face death with such contentment, whether he's young or old, that he's able to so confidently stand before the Lord and say, I have no regrets whatsoever. You can kill me now and I'll be a happy man. Well, he's able to say this because he's ready to face death because he's seen eternal life. And it's in Jesus Christ. What more could he ask for? And some of you may read this passage or hear what I'm saying now and think, what does any of this have to do with me? What do I have in common with Simeon? It's a different cultural context. It's certainly a different time period. Certainly a different situation. I'm not holding Jesus in my arms right now. But one thing that we have in common with Simeon is that just as Simeon was called to a life of waiting, so Christians are called to a life of waiting. And no more are we reminded of this than around the Christmas season. You've heard many of our church staff say on the stage throughout this entire month that Christmas is a season of waiting. 
The word Advent that we get from leading up to Christmas it actually means waiting. And some of you may have heard that in the, in the previous weeks. Some of you may hear that right now and think, what exactly are you waiting for in Christmas? Jesus has already been born. What, what else is there to wait for? Well, the significance of Christmas is not that Jesus came as a baby. The significance of Christmas is that Jesus came as a baby and he's returning as a king. And that's again why in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So my question for you this morning is, are you waiting for that day with anticipation and preparation? Have you molded your life in a way that it points to that day above everything else? There's a lot of different things that we are waiting for in this life. Some of you in this room may be waiting to bring a baby into your family. You want so desperately, whether it's through adoption or through natural means, some of you may be waiting for a spouse to come into your life. You desire to commit yourself to one person for the rest of your life and to love them and to be loved by them. Some of you may be waiting with excitement for the day that you can retire. Some of you may be waiting for that day, even if it's 25 years out from now. My wife and I have been waiting for the past three years to buy a house. And we've been preparing for that day for these past three years. We've been saving every dollar that we can, sometimes even living in places that were not the safest place to live, but they were cheap. And we knew that if we just held out a little bit longer, we could afford a house a little bit quicker. There's a lot of things that we can wait for in this life that aren't bad things. Those are all good things to desire, to wait on, to look forward to. But above all else, are you waiting for Christ's final redemption? Are you looking forward to that day in a unique way above every other day that you could experience in your life? Have you allowed Christ to capture your affections in such a way that when you come face to face with God, you can say like Simeon, I have no regrets. I've received what I've been waiting for because what I've been waiting for is Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that we learned through Simeon's life. Hoping Christ leads to waiting. And the second thing that we learned through the life of Simeon is hoping Christ leads to worshiping. Hoping Christ leads to worshiping. After the promise of God has been fulfilled in the life of Simeon and he's holding Jesus in his arms, he then goes into a song of praise in verses 29 through 32 that's been come to know... Uh, come to be known as the Nunc Dimittis, uh, which if I remember right, I believe it means uh, now you are dismissing. But he shows us in this song of praise one of two important things that we should keep in mind about worship. What Simeon shows us is that worship is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. Now, for some of you, particularly those that have been uh, attending a church for a large portion of your life, 
you may not consider that statement very groundbreaking, that worship is rooted in the gospel, or at least it should be rooted in the gospel. But I think it's important for us to understand what exactly it is we mean by the gospel here when we make that kind of statement. And if you read with me in verses 30 through 32, Simeon explains, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And there's two words that I want us to focus our attention on in this particular passage. That is, all peoples. You see, we rejoice and worship God, not because Christ has come to save you. That is not the gospel. We rejoice and we worship God because Christ has come to save all people. And that's why at College Park we have uh, in our core values the idea of biblical unity in diversity because we recognize that Christ has not just come to save people that are exactly like us. Christ has come to save Republicans and Democrats. He's come to save the rich and the poor. He's come to save the young and the old. He's come to save those who are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and Indian. And some of you need to hear this this morning. He's even come to save Patriots fans. And when he saves them, he converts them to Packers fans. Something to keep in mind. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, in terms of how we can apply this, apply this practically, you should find just as much joy in remembering that the person next to you has experienced the saving grace of God as you find in remembering that you yourself has ex- have experienced the saving grace of God. Worship is rooted in the gospel, and the gospel is for all people. The second thing to keep in mind is that worship is not void of suffering. Worship is not void of suffering. And we learn this not through the life of Simeon this time, but now through the lives of Mary and Anna. In verses 34 and 35, Simeon tells Mary that not only will she lose her husband eventually, but she's also going to lose her son on a cross And the pain that she's going to experience will be like a sword that's piercing through her soul. And Anna, unlike Mary, has actually already experienced her loss. She's remained a widow for what it seems to be most of her life at this point. But nevertheless, Luke tells us that she actually spends night and day in the temple worshiping the Lord. Now, it's very possible that Luke is using some hyperbole here. We don't know if Anna literally spent every single night and day of her life in the temple worshiping the Lord, praying and fasting. But either way, I think you get the idea. This woman, these women have committed their entire lives to worshiping God and placing their hope in Christ despite the loss and the suffering that they have endured and will endure. I've heard some Christians counsel other Christians who are going through a significant amount of pain and suffering in their lives before, and they've told them, you just need to praise your way out of the suffering. And I understand why they would give someone a word like that, but we should face the reality that there's times when God may not want you to actually be out of your suffering. 
He may want to be teaching you something through your suffering. But certainly, he wants you to be praising him despite your suffering. Certainly, he wants you to be praising him through your suffering. You see, biblical worship is not in ignorance to the trials that we may encounter, or even in some contexts, the persecution that we may face as Christians. It's a recognition that despite our suffering, Christ is greater than all other things that we could experience in this life, and he's promised to redeem all things for the sake of his glory. That's why Paul can say with such confidence in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As I was reading through this particular part of our passage this morning and preparing for the sermon, my mind went to our worship team and our sound tech team because they, every Sunday, whether you've, you've seen it yourself or experienced it yourself, set up basically everything that you see in this sanctuary. And no fault of their own, it's just kind of the nature of the beast, but practically every single week, something goes wrong in that setup process. Something doesn't work correctly. Something isn't coming through on the soundboard. They're getting feedback, all kinds of different things. But I'm sure that pretty much every single Sunday, if you look at them on stage as they lead us in worship, you would never know that something has gone wrong that morning that has caused an insane amount of stress in their lives for the past hour and a half. And the reason for that is because the quality of their worship isn't dependent on the ease of their week or their morning. It's dependent on their hope in Christ, and hope in Christ is eternal and unchanging. It is always true, it is always powerful, it is always significant in our lives as we worship. So worship is not void of suffering. Worship is rooted in the gospel, but most importantly, the hope of Christ is what leads us to worship. And then the final thing that we see here is that hope in Christ leads us to witnessing. Hope in Christ leads us to witnessing. In verse 38, we see that uh, Anna, after she has also seen Jesus being held by Simeon, even heard the words that Simeon has spoken about Jesus, the hope that he's going to bring, the salvation that he's going to bring for all people, Her response is very important for us to note. It says in verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I want us to draw our attention here to these three words, speak of him. There's two things that we need to pay attention to here. First of all, that what she is saying, she spoke. And then what she spoke was not just about anything, but it was about him, that is Jesus Christ. She spoke of him. And the reason that I belabor this point this morning is because over the past few years, I've begun to notice that there's two alternatives to this concept that have become more and more popular 
in the local church today. The first alternative that I see is that people choose not to speak. They don't speak. These churches see the gospel as something to live out rather than to speak of. Rather than committing themselves to evangelistic efforts, they build houses, they volunteer at various shelters, they donate shoes to children across the world. And and let me just clarify, none of those are bad things. In fact, those are things that we are commanded to do as Christians as we love our neighbor as ourselves. But we also need to understand that those things are not the gospel. And though they may be means of sharing the gospel, they are not what the gospel actually is in its purest form. We have a young couple in our, in our church that was just approved by a missions agency to be missionaries to the Middle East. And over this next year or two years, they're going to go through a lot of different things in preparation for their travels. But one of the most important things that they're going to be learning and dedicating their time to is learning the language of the people that they're going to be with. Why? Why is that so important? Why are they investing so much of their time in that? Because in order to share the gospel, you have to speak the gospel as Anna spoke to those who are waiting for the hope of Jerusalem. You cannot share the gospel without speaking the gospel. The second alternative that I see to what Anna is doing here is that churches speak, but they speak not of Christ. Instead, they speak of their own self-sufficiencies. I saw not too long ago uh, a church that, it's a very large church. In fact, it's, I believe it's one of the 10 largest churches in the United States. But I saw that they were starting a new sermon series, and I don't know if this was the title of the sermon series or maybe just a sermon in the series, maybe just a tagline onto the sermon series, but the tagline was, I am enough. And they weren't talking about God when they said I. And I thought to myself, you know, without any kind of context there, if they're literally just saying, I am enough, that is the most anti-gospel statement that you could make. And what is the gospel exactly, you may ask? Well, Tim Keller helps us out by answering this question for us when he says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You may notice that there's two parts to that definition of the gospel. First, it's a recognition of who we are, that we are incapable of saving ourselves, but then it's also a recognition of who Christ is. That he is more than capable, more than willing to save us if we call on his name. Are you so overcome with the experiencing of uh, hope in Christ that you, like Anna, cannot wait to witness to those around you of its goodness? Have you experienced hope in such an incredible way that when you see those who don't have the same hope that you have, you cannot wait to find an opportunity to preach the gospel to them, to give them the same hope that you've been given in Jesus Christ? Have you seen the hope of Christ take root in the lives of those around you in a way 
that causes you to worship with passion? Have you tasted the hope of Christ and wait in anticipation and preparation for the day when you see him face to face? You know, these three things that we see in Simeon and Anna in this story are certainly not exhaustive when it comes to the way the hope in Christ affects our lives and the things that it leads us to do and to believe in and to act on. But it's certainly a good starting point. And so my question for you today is that are you doing those three things? Do you have such hope in Christ that you are waiting with such anticipation and such preparation for the day that you see Jesus Christ face to face? Have you experienced hope in such a way that you cannot wait to worship, not just because of what Christ has done for you, but because of what Christ has done for all peoples? Have you experienced the hope of Christ in such a way that you cannot wait to witness to those around you? I pray that you have. And I pray that we take those things today, these three things that hope leads us to, and that we use them to evaluate our lives this morning and how dependent we are on the hope of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, Lord, but that we would see its power, that we would see its significance in our lives. Lord, that we would see hope in Christ as something that is so unique. Lord, there are so many things in this world that we could place our hope in, but you are the only thing that has promised us to never leave us or forsake us. You are the only person that has promised absolute eternal stability in our lives, unconditional love. Oh God, may we live in a way that that is true, that we have experienced that hope in our lives, that it would not just be stagnant, that it would be active and changing. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.